Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's financial policy correspondent, Sam Fleming, retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and investment banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer. This week, we'll be discussing the latest interview with the European Banking Authority's chairman. We'll also have a look at the latest twists and turns in the long-running co-op saga. And finally, we'll look at the Rothschilds dynasty's latest move into London. First, though, that EBA interview, Andrea Enria, the Italian chairman of the European Banking Authority, has been talking to us, Sam, and uh, he had quite a few interesting messages to convey, not least around the governance of European institutions like his own. It was all in the context of the banking union plans in Euroland and the preparations for a comprehensive assessment of the balance sheets of the various banks in the region. The EBA is going to play a part in that by its stress test plans, which are going to come through next year. But Andrea Enria really had, as you said, some concerns about the governance of his own body, describing it as impossible and saying that effectively his own body is becoming bound up in red tape because of the way it makes its decisions. The particular context of that was in the context of a bank resolution and when banks get in trouble, which has been an extremely contentious point in the euro area discussions. But I think more broadly, he seemed to be sending a message really that he felt the EBA was hamstrung by its own government's governance systems and that this was making it very difficult for him to do his own job. Yeah, so just to explain, the EBA is an authority that was created two and a half, three years ago as the overarching EU supervisor of the banking system. And underneath it, it has the 28 member states and their national regulators. So I think that was his key point that, as you say, he was making in relation to the resolution regime, which is incoming under banking union plans at a Eurozone level. But also, he seemed to be making the point more broadly that to have 28 representatives effectively on a board, committee-style structure, which depends really on compromise constantly is just not the way to run things the point about resolution is you're trying to wind up a bank in a crisis and you just can't do that if you have to do it on a committee basis i mean his key comment was committees are not very good bodies in the middle of a crisis if you're trying to resolve a bank in 24 hours then going through multiple phases of taking votes on various matters is just not compatible with the crisis situation you have in front of you more broad context is obviously the eba is effectively a mediator between euro area banking supervision and the banking supervision system in the city of london which is europe's biggest financial center there's huge scope for conflict as the ssm single supervisory mechanism in Euroland is set up and you have effectively two beasts on the European banking financial scene, uh, the Bank of England on one side and the ECB on the other. There's one body which in fact stands between those two uh, two institutions, which is the EBA, and somehow it needs to mediate between them. And yet again, Mr. Enria seems to be worried about whether his body has the streamlined and efficient mechanisms, governance mechanisms that it needs to do its job. 
I suppose it's a problem in many ways because, as you say, big beasts in the form of the ECB and the Bank of England, but also big beasts running those institutions in the form of Mario Draghi and Mark Carney. And as erudite a man as Andrea Enria is, he's not a big beast in that European context. He and his body will find it pretty difficult to manage that relationship, I think. When you look at the history of the EBA, the UK was very concerned to ensure that the EBA didn't become effectively a body which was the vanguard of euro area regulation. It wanted to tie it up a little bit and tie up its ability to take a lead on that through multiple checks and balances on the EBA itself. And I think the concern might be that in hamstringing the EBA, the UK has tied the hands of its only friend in the European Union when it comes to banking regulation. Well, this will be a story that will play out over the next year, gradually I'm sure we'll come back to it at various points, but that whole asset quality review that you mentioned taking place under the auspices of the ECB and then the stress test from the EBA are going to happen concurrently over the next year. So as I say, we'll come back to that at various points. Thanks very much, Sam. Our second topic for the day is the latest bizarre twist in the whole co-op saga. Regular listeners will remember that it's not that long ago that we had a solution presented for the restructuring of the cooperative bank, which basically sees the co-op group take a 30% shareholding and the rest of the ownership of the bank going essentially to its bondholders. Over the past couple of days, over the weekend, we had more revelations about the shortcomings of the previous management in the form of drug allegations against the former chairman of the co-op. Charlene, you were delving into this yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing twist to this already fascinating tale of the restructuring of the co-op bank which has been rumbling on since June when the regulators exposed a £1.5 billion capital hole in the balance sheet, which suggested then that obviously it had not been very well competently managed. Now, the latest news to come out is that the former chairman of the co-op bank, who is a Methodist minister, Reverend Paul Flowers, has been plunged into a bit of a scandal involving allegations that he bought hard drugs, a number of different drugs in recent weeks, around the time that he was appearing in front of the Treasury Select Committee in a quite a, a grueling session about his chairmanship of the bank and big flaws in it. This all came out over the weekend because there was an expose by the Mail on Sunday, I think, which included video footage as well as revelations about text messaging and so on. It was all quite lurid. It was, remarkably so, and just pretty shocking given that there were direct references to his appearance in front of the Treasury Select Committee. I think it was the days that followed that. He was with a friend in a car who had been secretly filmed allegedly discussing buying drugs. Now, he has been suspended by the Methodist Church for a number of weeks while they investigate these claims. The co-op are saying he was no longer a board member. They got rid of him back in the summer when the first problems emerged at the co-op bank. But it does have huge reputational issues for them if they need any more problems in that respect. Well, as you say, I mean, it's all very melodramatic in terms of the personal story around Reverend Flowers. But actually, it does have a direct relevance for the co-op because even though he's not there anymore it casts a very bad light on the type of management that they clearly had in place. Yeah absolutely and it would be interesting to see whether there are any further examples of this kind of alleged behaviour that come out 
that would signal that he had maybe done this before while he was in that position. You know, at the moment, well, there's no evidence to suggest that's true, but I'm sure that would be a, a very interesting angle. And again, all this sort of harks back to the unique and somewhat strange structure of the co-op itself and particularly the bank whereby its board members were elected by the co-op members and they didn't have to have any banking experience at all. So you had the chairman was a Methodist minister, you also had nurses, you had horticulturalists, people from all different backgrounds, no bankers, (laughs) which was always quite remarkable and they were constantly under pressure on that from the regulator. But that was never changed, no. And the regulator never actually stepped in to overturn the appointment, particularly the chairman, who, aside from what came out over the weekend, there was a fascinating appearance in front of the Treasury Select Committee recently where his utter lack of understanding of his bank was quite dramatically exposed. When the example that's been repeatedly quoted is when he was asked the size of the asset base of the co-op bank and he said he was absolutely sure it was three billion when in fact it's forty seven billion pounds. So there were huge problems in the running of this bank and I think they're still emerging. Well as you were saying to me earlier, the co-op looks like it's out of the woods for the time being in terms of its restructuring, but that a lot of things could still go wrong from here. So the reflections on its past mismanagement will probably continue for some time. We should move on to our final topic which is the latest developments within the Rothschild dynasty. This is news, Daniel, you you broke in Monday's paper about Edmund de Rothschild coming to London to set up a new private banking slash merchant banking operation. Yeah, basically, they are launching what they call a merchant bank business here in London, which is basically a private banking business that caters to entrepreneurs and wealthy families here in London. And it is a significant step for this Paris and Geneva-based part of the family in that they have had a presence in London for three decades, but they've never been here with their actual core business of private banking. So they've hired around 20 senior bankers and advisors, and they're expanding their offices here. They were already present here with an asset management business which is basically a hedge fund business. But now I had an interview with the CEO of the group, Christoph de Becker, who said that basically London is going to become the fourth major hub for the group, aside from Paris, Geneva and Luxembourg. And how does this venture fit in with the broader dynasty? Basically, this private banking and asset management group has got its headquarters in Geneva, and it's majority owned by Baron Benjamin de Rothschild, who's the son of Edmond de Rothschild, and his wife, Ayane de Rothschild. And they run their business completely separate from what is known as the Rothschild Group, which is the Paris group of the family, which is owned by David and Eric de Rothschild, and which is also known for its majority control of Enim Rothschild, which is obviously the London corporate finance house that is very well known here in the UK for its M&A advisory and other businesses. So while they do have small cross shareholdings in each other, these businesses are really run separately. We need a little chart, clearly, to, yeah, uh, it to is, go with Yeah, it is fairly good. And to make things even more complicated, <laughs> there is another famous Rothschild, Lord Jacob Rothschild, who's very well known, obviously, in the UK as well, who owns this listed investment vehicle called RIT Capital Partners. And this vehicle actually has got a corporation with Edmund de Rothschild in the UK in the asset management business. So it's all happy families in the end. It is. It yeah. is. They're still running a lot of businesses separately, but they're sort 
sort of slowly and slowly moving back together in certain areas at least maybe one huge family merger <laughs> to come at some point yeah. thanks for the explanation daniel yeah. we should stop there but uh, i just wanted to thank sam charlene and daniel for talking about all of those topics and also thank you for listening remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking banking weekly was produced by john byrne murdoch until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts support for this podcast and the following message come from corient corient provides wealth management services centered around you as one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the u.s corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.